Hebrews chapter 6. Now, here's the deal, my brothers and sisters. Last week, we finished verse 3. And it just necessitates now that we go into verses 4, 5, and 6. And I confess to you that I'm not overly excited about verses 4, 5, and 6. It's not that I like them less than I like any other in the Bible. It's just that it is one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the entire Bible. It's an extremely difficult passage. It's a lightning rod of sorts, and it's very emotionally charged, I have found, the issue that it brings up. So because we teach the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, these are the verses that are before us. We're going to deal with them, and what we're going to endeavor to do is to be faithful to the text. Amen? So let's read and pray for God's help and wisdom, and then we'll get into it. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4 says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help with this passage that is before us. We've got no lack of faith with regards to your word here. We believe that this is your word. We believe that this is your infallible and inerrant word. We believe that it is living for active. We believe that the passage in front of us is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And we simply ask that you would help us, Lord. It's a difficult passage in front of us, and I am desperately wanting to be faithful to the text and to honor you, Jesus Christ. And we want to do that as a church. And so we trust you in your word now with our hearts. We ask that you would lead us into right interpretation. And any ideas that we have that are going to be challenged now, Lord, we ask that it would be only by the truth of your word and in the tenderness of your Holy Spirit. Shepherd us, Lord. Bring us through this passage and Ultimately, that it would bring more glory to your name and it would cause us to be more on fire for you. Bless this time. Please help me now to anoint, uh, to with anointing, teach your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, one of the most difficult and controversial passages in all of scripture in front of us. I did teach on the subject that is broached in this passage when I was teaching through Hebrews chapter 2. I taught a message there entitled, Can Christians Lose Their Salvation? It was from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It was part 2 of a series. You want to get that message. You're going to have questions after today's message, and that one will help you sort through those. If you already heard it, you may want to be fresh, uh, refreshed. If you haven't heard it, you definitely want to hear it. It is a broader theological explanation of the eternal security and assurance of the believer. Today, we'll just be dealing with the text before us. In that message, we, belt, we dealt with the broad topic, and uh, we looked at several facets of it and, and, you know, the various views. So you want to have that at your fingertips. You can get it today on CD or DVD. You can get it online for free. There's many ways to get it, but do so. As we now approach this text, we need to be very careful to get the context right. And what we see is that in the opening chapters of the book of Hebrews, there is a pattern that emerges. And the pattern is this. We have first Jesus being presented as better than anything else. And then there follows on the heels of that a warning against falling away from him. And then after that, there is an encouragement to stick with him. So we have this pattern that emerges in the opening chapters of Hebrews of Jesus, a warning and encouragement. Jesus is better, a warning against leaving him, and an encouragement to stick with him. That pattern begins in chapter 1, which is all about Jesus. And it's all about Jesus being better, that he's better than the prophets, and he's better than the angels, and he's better than anything or anyone that has come before. And so the pattern begins, and it continues into the second phase in the second chapter, verse 1, where we have the warning. It says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention 
to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So we have the warning after Jesus being revealed, the warning against drifting, and then in the last verse of chapter 2, we have the encouragement. Chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So the encouragement, the Lord is able to help us in our struggles. And then the pattern begins to repeat. In chapter 3, verse 1, we have Jesus presented. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then a warning in verse 12. Take care, brethren lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. And then immediately on the hills of the warning and encouragement, verses 13 and 14. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So we have the repeating of the pattern. And then in chapter 4, we have an illustration of the precepts set forward in the pattern. And he illustrates those precepts by calling to mind a story that would be very familiar with his Hebrew audience. That is the vignette from Numbers chapter 14 where the children of Israel had been brought out of Egypt and to the promised land, and it was now the moment where they were to enter in. And the spies went in, and the spies came out, and the spies were divided with regards to their opinion. Ten of them saying, it's too much, it's too gnarly, there's no way. Two of them saying, it's what God has for us, let's go all the way, we can do this thing with the help of God. Ultimately, Israel decided not to enter in. And in not entering in, they were exercising a lack of faith. Entering in would have been exercising faith. Lord, we trust you. It's difficult. There's giants. There's walled cities. There's circumstances that appear overwhelming. But we trust you to go forward into your will for our lives. Instead, they exercised a lack of faith, and they betrayed or revealed in their hearts a disbelief in God's faithfulness. And they chose not to enter in. And by not entering to God's place for them, they miss God's rest for them. And so that fact is illustrated in chapter 4. We see the summation of it in verses 1 and 11. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. And then verse 11 let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So he reminds them of their past, Israel's past, when they didn't trust the Lord, and so they missed the rest, and so he's telling them, trust in Jesus Christ and enter into his rest in peace, and then the pattern repeats. Starts again in chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus is presented. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And this presentation of Jesus continues into chapter 5 all the way through verse 10 where we have that analogy drawn between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And then there comes immediately after this presentation of a new facet of Jesus Christ as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, there comes the warning. Chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He continues in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah, let us press on toward maturity. And he continues the warning in the verses that we're dealing with this morning, verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll read it again. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
So a warning and a very severe warning after the revelation of Jesus Christ as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then will come the encouragement in chapter six, verses nine through 12, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what I wanna do now is make the nature of this warning very clear. Here's what this warning is saying. If these Christians who are in danger of drifting and have become dull of hearing and deficient in maturity, do not change direction, they are doomed. That's the warning in a nutshell. If these Christians who are in danger of drifting and have become dull of hearing and deficient in maturity, do not change direction, they will be doomed. Now, what I just conveyed to you is my understanding of Hebrews chapter 6. But as I previously mentioned, this is one of the most hotly debated texts in all of the New Testament. And my understanding of it is not the only accepted understanding. It is disputable and it is a disputed text. I'm not saying that the text itself teaches contradictory things. It doesn't. It intends to say one thing. But the church does not necessarily agree on what that one thing is. And here's the crux of it. Here is the issue upon which it hangs. Of whom is the passage speaking? That's the issue. That makes all the difference in the world. Of whom is the passage speaking? There's only two options. The passage is either speaking of, number one, people who were never really Christians they may have looked like Christians at some time, but they were never really converted, and so they are lost. Or it is speaking about, number two, people who were really Christians, but ceased to believe at some point in time, and so are lost. Now, to be perfectly honest, we all want this text to be talking about non-Christians. We all want this text to be talking about people who were never saved. Because, and understandably so, most of us are very uncomfortable with the idea that a Christian could ever lose his or her salvation. Now let's understand something when it comes to reading and studying the Bible. What happens in much of our Bible reading and study and theological development is this, that we come to a text in the Bible with a secret hope to preserve our comfort and be faithful to our hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a, a method or principle or system of interpreting. You could call it your interpretive lens. All of us, to one degree or another, read and study the Bible with a honest but secret hope to preserve our comfort and be faithful to our hermeneutic. In fact, I have found, I'm sure you found, that many people are more committed to their comfort and their hermeneutic than they are actually to the Bible. And if your hermeneutic or your interpretive lens or your comfort level is that Christians cannot lose their salvation, then you're going to do everything you can to understand the text of Hebrews 6 that way. Everything you can. I know because I've done so. But here's what we need to do. We need to do everything we can to understand the text in context. We need to work very hard to discern what the text is saying, not what we want it to say or not how it might fit into our theological grid, but what it actually says. And so we've got to work real hard at context to get the text right. And the context of the book of Hebrews is really simple. The major theme is that Jesus is better. The occasion for writing is that some Christians were in danger of drifting away from faith in Jesus Christ. The reason being they had encountered difficult times, and I won't belabor the reasons here. We talked about it. Uh, there was persecution happening. And the directive that they, they, that they then received from the book of Hebrews is found in chapter 2, verse 1. 
where they are told to pay much closer attention to what you have learned, lest you drift away from it. Pay much closer attention to what you have learned, lest you drift away from it. Now notice the phraseology, drift away. In order to drift from, you must have previously come to, right? In order to drift from something, you must have previously come to something. And the directive that's given over and over in the book of Hebrews is don't drift away from Jesus. Now, if somebody's going to drift away from Jesus, they must have previously come to Jesus, right? But the issue in chapter 6 goes further than drifting. Drifting is a beginning. But there's a finality in the issue brought up in chapter 6. And it's not the issue of merely drifting. It's far beyond that. It's the issue of falling away. Of falling away. But falling away from what? Or from who? Same idea. If you're going to fall away from something, you must have come to something. If you're going to fall away from someone, you must have come to something. And so the exhortation very clearly is don't fall away. From what? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. It's a person of Jesus Christ. We've got to get this straight. When he's saying to them, don't fall away, he's saying, don't fall away from Jesus Christ and faith in him. He's not telling them not to fall away from a set of teachings. He's not telling them not to fall away from a community or the church gathering. He'll do that later on. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, he'll say, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. So he'll do that later on. He'll tell them that they need to go to church. But he's not exhorting them here. He's not telling them that they can't fall away from church. That's not grounds for being possible to be renewed. He's talking about not falling away from the person of Jesus Christ. And one cannot fall from Jesus unless they have come to Jesus. So it seems then very clear that we have in view here Christians. Now we begin to answer the question on which the issue hangs. Is this exhortation, this warning addressed to non-Christians or Christians? It begins to seem that he is talking to Christians. In fact, the author calls them brethren and holy brethren in chapter 3. In the same chapter, he calls them partakers of a heavenly calling and partakers of Christ. Now, if you call someone brethren and holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling and partakers of Christ, are you talking about Christians or non-Christians? Christians, yeah. In chapter 5, verse 12, he tells them that they should have by this time been teachers of the elementary principles of Christianity or the ABCs of the Christian faith. Now, would you exhort a group of people to be teachers of the ABCs of the Christian faith if they themselves were Christians or non-Christians? Christians. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says to them, let us press on toward maturity. We got to go on toward maturity. What he doesn't say is very important to solidify to whom he is speaking. He doesn't say, let's get saved or you guys get saved. He said, we simply need to mature. And so is he speaking to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. In fact, he uses the first person plural pronouns, us and we, in verses one and three of chapter six. Us and we, inclusive first person plural pronouns. He himself, the author, we would assume of Hebrews, is a Christian. In context, then, Christians are being addressed and rebuked for their proclivity to drift and their having become dull of hearing. Remember from last week that the author wanted to explain to them in greater detail this analogous identity between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. He wanted to unpack that analogy to further highlight the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
that he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But then realizing that his audience was dull of hearing, he stops and begins to rebuke them in chapter 5, verse 11. And tells them they need to get mature in chapter 6, verse 1. And then in chapter 7, he's going to go right back to Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, what are we to suppose contextually and logically about the warning concerning falling away in chapter 6? Are we to suppose that the author, after five chapters of addressing brethren, holy brethren, Christians, suddenly and in mid-topic, stops talking to that audience and begins to address another one entirely, namely non-Christians, and then tells them not to fall away from what? What are they going to fall away from? And then jumps back to Melchizedek in chapter 7. Are we to believe that he digresses and goes to another audience for chapter 6 and jumps right back into Melchizedek in chapter 7? Or... Does it make more sense, contextually and logically, to deduce that the author continues to speak to his Christian audience and is warning them not to fall away from Jesus? Now, let's look at the description that the author gives of the people in view, the ones in danger of falling away. And you tell me if these are Christians or not. Again, chapter 6, verse 4. And in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Okay, now, the first thing that we want to address is in verse four where it says, for in the case of those. Because there are people, including formerly myself, working very hard to make this passage not be talking about Christians, to, to, to have the author switching audience here. And one of the great arguments for that is the change in pronouns. In verses 1 and 3 of chapter 6, he used us and we. But then in chapter 4, he switches to the pronoun. He says, for in the case of those, no longer an inclusive pronoun, he changes it from the inclusive first-person plural to a third-person pronoun. And what some say about that is that that's a big deal. It means that he's no longer talking to Christians, but someone else, namely non-believers uh, intermingled in the congregation. Well, about that, I think we've already seen that that doesn't make sense contextually, but I think there's a very reasonable answer as to why he says, in the case of those, instead of in the case of us. Previously is us and we, now it's somebody else. Why is that? It is simply because neither the author nor the audience has fallen away yet. And so he's not going to say in the case of us because neither of them has fallen away yet. So he can't say in our case. He says in the case of those. In fact, his hope is that his audience will not be any of those. When you look at the descriptors, it seems to me to be a very clear description of Christians. Once again, those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, and the power of the age to come. Speaking of the miraculous power of God. Now, with all that has already been said about the context, the goal, and the logical flow of the passage, to make these verses descriptive of non-Christians is creative at best, deceptive at worst. You can do it. I mean, you can do it. You can finagle it and do it and say, look, see, it's non-Christians. You can do it. It just wouldn't be being honest to the context or the text. We just take a couple of the things mentioned here. N number one, those who have once been enlightened. That word enlightened in the Greek is photizo. Photizo is the word. And here's what it means. It's very clear. To make known in reference to the inner life or transcendent manners and thus enlighten. To make known 
in reference to the inner life, transcendent manners, things having to do with Jesus Christ and enlighten. It's not like they learned a couple Sunday school tidbits. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And what does Satan do when he wants people not to be saved? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light. So when the Bible goes on to say someone is enlightened, we would assume that it's saying they are Christians. Furthermore, the next phrase, tasted of the heavenly gift. Please don't associate this with Baskin Robbins. <laughs> tasted of the heavenly gift. This is not a Jesus taste test. There are no free salvation samples. Understand. The word taste in the Greek is guomai. It means this, very potent. It means to experience something, cognitively or emotionally, to come to know something, to experience something, to come to know something. The New Living Translation does a good, word, uh, a good job with the translation, and it just uses the word experienced for those who have experienced the heavenly gift. Here's a nugget. This same word is used in Hebrews 2.9 where we read that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, a core component of the historic Orthodox Christian faith is that Jesus really died. He really died on the cross that he might really rise from the dead, that we might really have eternal life. If he didn't really die, then we really don't have Christianity. But it says he tasted of death. Does that mean that it was Baskin Robbins death flavor? No. It means that it was a real deal. Now, some have heard that argument and said, okay, but notice the language here in Hebrews 6.4. It says, tasted of the heavenly gift, whereas in Hebrews 2.9, it says, tasted death. And so here's what they would say, that the word of denotes the fact that the persons in mind have not experienced the whole thing, just some of it, and so are not necessarily saved. Okay, but go a little further. Look at other usages in the New Testament. We find that in John chapter 8, verse 52, we have the same structure where it says this. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. The same structure. Does that mean that if we keep the word of Jesus Christ, we'll be delivered from a sample of death? A little bit of death, but not the whole thing? No, very clearly, it's speaking of death. And so the insertion of the word of in chapter 6, verse 4, and the omission of the word in chapter 2, verse 9, is merely stylistic and not doctrinal. Very clearly, he's talking about Christians. We'll take another phrase. Have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers is a word that some people try to deal with. Some have tried to say that partakers of the Holy Spirit means something less than having the Holy Spirit in the way that someone does who's saved. They don't have, they just partook. And that it refers to not the uh, relationship between a believer and the Holy Spirit, but the pre-salvific work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does have a work to do in the world that is pre-salvation. Namely, John chapter 16, verse 8, where Jesus says to the Holy Spirit, he comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's pre-salvation. To convict means to convince. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convince people that they're sinners, that there is a standard of righteousness, and that there is judgment coming. That's a pre-salvific work of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. And so some would say, when it says partakers, it means that they've only experienced that, but they haven't become believers. Well, I'm not so sure. The word partakers in the Greek is metakos. And the New Living Translation translates it shared those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a valid translation. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, the same word is used to speak of business partners. Some of the disciples who were fishermen, they were in business together. It describes that partnership. So it's not a taking a piece of or a passing or a small experience in time. It is a partnership. 
And so sharing and participating, the definition of the Greek word, is not the language of being merely convicted by the Holy Spirit before salvation. It is the relational language of salvation. It is speaking of that relationship where the sons of God are being led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8.14, where we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. So you see, I think you have to work really hard and you really have to neglect context to say that this is speaking of non-Christians. And we could go through it and address the rest of the details in verses 4 and 5, but I, I think it's obvious. I really do. That the Bible is speaking about Christians here. So then the only question left is this. What is it saying to them? It's saying the same thing to them that the Bible said to analogous ones in the Old Testament, that story that we already referenced, Numbers chapter 14, where they were supposed to enter into God's place for them and God's time for them, but they didn't trust the Lord. They refused to believe the Lord for it. And because of that, the Lord dealt with them severely. The Bible seems to teach that those who know and then neglect are in real trouble. Numbers 14, 22 through 23, the Lord speaking says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. You remember the story. They would never enter into the promised land. God said of them, you will die in the wilderness because you chose not to trust, not to believe. You refuse to go forward. So those who know, taste, partake of, see, and experience, and yet reject him, are dealt with severely. And that's what's being unfolded here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So it seems to be saying in this passage that if a Christian falls away, it is impossible for them to come back and to be saved. Now, we had better define what fall away means because that's scary for us. Fall away, okay, it's pretty clear here. Those who fall away, it is impossible to renew them. So we better get right what it means to fall away. The Greek word is parapipto, kind of a fun word, parapipto, and it means this. To fail to follow through on a commitment. To commit apostasy. To fail to follow through on a commitment, to commit apostasy. So as we said, in context, it's pretty clear that this must be referring to Christians. It can't be referring to non-Christians here in verse 6, because about which would they be apostate? Committing apostasy concerning what? They're not Christians. What are they falling away from? So I want to make very clear then, since we are talking about Christians and falling away, what we are and what we are not talking about. Listen carefully. First of all, we are not talking about Christians who sin or sin too much. Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord, that that's not what it's talking about. That's good news because that's this camp, right? That's you and me, brothers and sisters. That's us. This passage is not talking about Christians who sin or sin too much. We are not talking about, also, those who pretend to follow Christ but never actually did. The old, they were never actually saved. Those people do exist. Jesus called them the tares among the wheat. Paul said that they would be in the body. In fact, some of you are here. You're in every church. 
You've gone through the motions. You play the game. You might even be fooling yourself, but you've never really come to Jesus Christ as the only unique Savior of the world, repented of your sins, and trusted in his finished work of the cross and resurrection from the dead for your only hope in eternal life. You're never a Christian. We're not talking about those who pretended to be or thought they were, but never were actually Christians. We are talking about Christians who deliberately abandon faith in Jesus. Deliberately abandon faith in Jesus. They come to a point where they say, I don't believe anymore. But you did this and so on and so on. Yes, I know, but I don't believe anymore. I used to believe, I don't believe anymore. I don't think Jesus is the son of God. I don't think Jesus is unique. I don't think that his death upon the cross was anything more than political punishment and religious agenda. I don't think that he rose from the dead. I don't think that he's the only way to heaven. He doesn't matter at all. I do not trust in Jesus, his identity, or his work upon the cross. That is who we are talking about. Develop it further. We are not talking about Christians who are having a crisis of faith. That's good news. We're not talking about Christians who are struggling. The disciples said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We're not talking about those. We're not talking about Christians who are struggling with certain doctrines. It's not who's in view here. Nor are we talking about Christians who are backslidden but trusting. Oh, that's good news because that's a whole grip of you. (laughs) Backslidden but trusting. Not where you once were, not where you know you ought to be. You've slid him back a little bit, but you're still trusting in Jesus Christ. You believe him to be the only unique son of God and the savior of the world. You believe that he died a substitutionary, atoning death upon the cross, and there that he conquered sin and death and the devil, and that he rose from the dead to give you eternal life. You believe it, you trust in it, but you're a little cheesy right now. It's not talking about you. Christians who are backslidden but trusting. We are talking about Christians who are rejecting and refusing to trust any longer the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for this person, verse six clearly says, it is impossible to renew them to repentance again. They once believed, they tasted, they experienced, they partook, they knew, they left, they abandoned their salvation and its benefits. For them, it says, it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance, to come back to faith and to be saved again. Why is that? Is it impossible from the perspective of God or man? Is it impossible because of God or because of man. Man is a problem here. It's not that God forbids it necessarily. It's that the heart of the person who has been through that and come to that point is so exceedingly hard that they are not coming back. Their heart is so hardened, they are not coming back. Now, this is very important. Listen to me. We are not talking about the proverbial prodigal son here, okay? Here's the difference. The prodigal son came back. He left. He went and lived like an idiot. He went and sinned and he blew his inheritance and he was in rebellion, but he never stopped believing in the father, In fact, the story says that there was a time where he came to his senses and wanted to go back to the father. So we're not talking about the prodigal. And here's the difficulty, and here's why it's so emotionally charged, because somebody could be backslidden for decades. And then we start to think, have they gone apostate? Are they the fallen away of Hebrews 6? Leave that with God. Leave that with God. Listen, 
This is a question that always comes up when I talk about this being impossible. When the scripture says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, always some wonderful Christian will come to me and say, okay, here's my problem. My husband or my ex-husband or my dad or my mom or my kids or my sister, so on and so forth. Gosh, they're so far from the Lord. They were once walking with the Lord. I'm sure they knew the Lord. They are so far from the Lord. Impossible. Should I stop praying for them? Never. Leave what is impossible with God and you pray your buns off for that person. You understand? It's not for us to judge at what point they want to apostate. We can't even know. You leave that with God and you pray your heart out for that kid or that husband or that mom. Amen. That's our responsibility. The rest of it, we leave with the Lord. Part of our struggle with this text is that we come to it assuming that the apostate person will want to come back. But the text tells us that the apostate person doesn't want to come back. If you left the Lord and you want to come back to him, the text isn't talking about you. The text is only talking about people who never want to come back. You may have left the Lord and been a bonehead for an afternoon on the beach somewhere and said, oh, I don't believe that anymore. And now you've come back to the Lord. The text isn't about you. It's about those who never want to come back and continue in denial. It says about them that it's impossible Ending of the verse, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Difficult wording to understand. New Living Translation helps a little bit. It says, by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Still hard to understand. Tell you the truth, I've, I've studied that little part of that verse for so long, I'm not sure exactly what it's saying. The wording is just, Weird to me. I've studied it in English and in Greek. I'm not exactly sure what it's saying, but I've narrowed it down to two options. <laughs> the first option is it's referring to this. The Jewish idea of sacrificing over and over again. The Jewish idea of sacrificing over and over again. Very consistent with the context. It's a Hebraic context in the book of Hebrews, no doubt. And in the Hebraic mindset and in the Jewish worship structure, they always were used to sacrificing over and over again. And you could come and sacrifice and go live how you please, and you could always come back and sacrifice according to the mercy of the Lord. Sins that were unintentional, as we learned a few weeks ago. But there was the sense of sacrificing over and over but Jesus is presented in the book of Hebrews as the one who has sacrificed once and for all. That's a major theme of the book. In fact, it says it explicitly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that he has sacrificed once and for all for all sins. And so this may be communicating that these people in view here by trying to go away and come back that they would be misunderstanding the finality of the cross and trying to employ the Jewish concept of sacrificing again. By doing so, they would be putting Jesus to open shame, so to speak, by equating him with a mere animal sacrifice that could be offered again at the sinner's will according to the sinner's need and at the sinner's convenience. It's not how the cross works. When you view the cross that way, you view it as not being good enough. I'm going to leave it. I can always come back and crucify again, so to speak. So that may, be one of the, that may be the answer to what is in view there. Second option. It may be saying that when they rejected Jesus and his work on the cross, they put themselves in that same camp as those who nailed Jesus to the cross and saw it as nothing more than a Roman act of justice and not the salvific work of God. They, they put themselves in the camp of the Roman soldiers who were nailing, of Pilate who said, oh, whatever, just do it. That they put him to open and public shame, which is exactly what crucifixion was in that context, in that time. And so it may be speaking that their perspective has become secular and they're like those who shouted, crucify him on Friday, even though they were singing Hosanna the Sunday before. And there were those people in Israel there at the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount at the Triumphal Entry, Palm Sunday. They were singing, Hosanna. Some in that same crowd on Friday were singing, crucify him. 
So it may be that when they were once professing and believing and now they're not, that they put themselves in that camp of those who put Jesus to open and public shame by hanging him on a cross between two criminals. You decide. Either way, the effect is the same. The effect is this. The people in view have come to miss the point of the cross and it is now to them a shameful thing. And the Bible speaks to that and who those people will be, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that is exactly what will happen to those who once were followers of Jesus Christ, but now deliberately denounce and reject him. Now, to help drive the point home, the author gives a good illustration in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, he says, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. Or as the NIV says, in danger of being cursed, in proximity to being cursed, on the edge. And it ends up, it goes further, it ends up being burned. Very simply, he's saying, but the water comes down and it falls on the field and the field is supposed to produce fruit. And if it produces fruit, it's blessed by God. And there's evidence that it's blessed by God. If it produces thorns and thistles, then it's no good and it ends up being burned. Fruit or thorns and thistles. If there's fruit, what happens is you reap a harvest. If it's thorns and it's thistles, it's a mess, you burn it. That was the agricultural, contextual understanding of the audience. And it makes a lot of sense of Jesus' words in John 15, where he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and he dries up, they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So he seems to be saying the same thing that's saying in Hebrews 6. Those who refuse to abide, they remove themselves from salvation, and the benefits of salvation, and the person of Christ, and the work of the cross, they deliberately remove themselves of, and will never have a desire to come back, they're lost. Now, I know what many of you are saying right now. Trust me, I know. Many of you are thinking this. God won't let that happen. God won't let the saved person, the truly saved person, fall away or apostatize because he'll keep us. He's faithful when we're faithless. He's faithful to complete the work he's begun in us, Philippians 3, 6. And he holds us in his hand and in the Father's hand, John chapter 10. And those scriptures are true and they are potent. And there's been many times in my life where I've taken each one of them to the bank. They're absolutely true and valid and potent. But what we must understand is that those texts, those passages were meant to bring security and comfort to the believer, not the apostate. They're meant to bring comfort to the sincere believer, not the thorough rejecter of the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the struggling and the weak believer, therefore, you and I, who say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I want to follow and I want to abide, but it's hard in this life, and it's hard for me right now. And let me know, Lord, that you're not going to abandon me. And to that, Jesus says, I have you in my hand. I'm faithful to complete the work I've begun in you. I'm faithful even when you're faithless. To you and I. The sincere believer trying to follow, that's the word of God. But to the one who outright rejects the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Bible offers no comfort or consolation. It says that they are lost and it is impossible to renew them. And yet, John 10 is the one that everybody pulls out for eternal salvation to combat Hebrews 6. All we need to do is look at it in context. 
John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He's speaking to those who follow him. That is comfort given to those who follow him, no matter how difficult, how up, how down, how sideways. The Bible speaks to you and I and gives us comfort that the Lord is holding on. But what Hebrews 6 has to say to those who go on and reject him outright is that they're lost. I mean, are you really expecting Jesus Christ to save someone who's saying, hey, I don't believe in you. Get away from me. I don't believe in your work on the cross or your resurrection from the dead or your claims of deity. I don't believe in any of that. Sure, I used to, but I don't. I don't want you in my life. Who are we to believe? It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now again, I know what you're saying. You're saying, but God wouldn't let the person reject him once they are saved. Okay, I know you're saying that. But the question is, does the Bible say that? Does the Bible really teach that in the final analysis, God will not let somebody fall away? That at the moment someone is choosing to denounce him, he will override their will and force them not to? Is that how it works? If that were the way God works, then wouldn't we have expected God to work that way in the garden? If that were the way God works, wouldn't we have expected him to work that way in Genesis and in the garden? In other words, why didn't he just knock the forbidden fruit out of Eve's hand? Why didn't he stop her at that decisive moment? If God had done for Eve in the garden what many are expecting him to do for wayward Christians now, if he had done it then, then he would have saved the whole world from every abortion, rape, murder, war, disease, and broken heart. But he didn't. He didn't do that for Eve. He didn't do that for humanity. Why do you think that is how God works now with those who refuse to continue with him? You see, there's a theological problem with a position or an expectation that demands God to do that now when he didn't do it then because the stakes were so much higher then. Here we're talking about a few Hebrew Christians. There we're talking about the fall of humanity. And furthermore, if that's what God does, if he overrides our will when we're going to fall away, then why doesn't he just do it when we begin to drift? Because a bunch of bad stuff happens in drifting. A bunch of bad stuff happens in drifting. A bunch of sin and rip off and heartache and heartbreak. If that's really what he's gonna do in the final analysis, why not just keep us from ever drifting at all? because he didn't make us that way. He didn't make us robots. He gave us responsibility. All of those verses that speak of God's sovereignty and then pertaining to the security of the believer and the assurance of salvation are true and good and awesome and wonderful and needed, but they must be held in tension with Hebrews chapter six. We must take the Bible as it is meant to be a whole. And we need to have a balanced view, not for the sake of balance, but in order to be honest to the whole of Scripture. And here is the honest, balanced view. Get this. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. It is an exercise of the sovereignty of God that he delegates responsibility to man. But he does so in a meaningful way. He gives us responsibility, 
by giving us the freedom to choose. And the responsibility comes in because God honors the choices that we make. Otherwise, it would not be true ability to choose. Nor would there be any responsibility if you didn't honor those decisions. D.A. Carson, who is one of the preeminent theologians of our day, speaks of something called compatibility. Uh, it's hard to say. Compatibilism. Compatibilism. Compatibility between two seemingly opposable ideas presented in Scripture. D.A. Carson said, Compatibilism is the tension that exists between two clear poles established in Scripture. Number one, that God is sovereign, clearly relayed to us in Scripture. The second poll, number two, man is responsible, inescapable in Scripture. And then, because of those two, there are two corollaries. Because both of those poles exist, there are two corollary thoughts. Number one, God's sovereignty never functions to mitigate man's responsibility. What does it mean to mitigate? Big word. It means to make less severe, serious, or painful. God's sovereignty never functions to make less severe, serious, or painful man's responsibility. And then the final corollary, man's responsibility never functions to diminish God's sovereignty. We are not saying because someone fell away and was able to fall away that they then are greater than God or greater than the saving work of God. That is simply ignoring the balance that we see in Scripture that we have God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And what the author of Hebrews has is a balanced view. And he also has, and here's where we end, a hopeful expectation of his audience's right exercise of their human responsibility. Look at what it says as we close. Verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, though we had to tell you this. We're convinced of better things for you that you're going to continue in your salvation. Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end and that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says to him, you guys, I, I have to warn you about this. As a pastor, I've got to warn you about this, he says to them, because you're drifting. I've got to tell you where that may possibly lead. But you're not there, and I don't think you're going to go there. Especially now that I've told you, I don't think you're going to go there, he says. Here's the encouragement. I think you guys are going to stick with salvation. I think you guys are going to stick with Jesus Christ. And as long as you stick with Jesus Christ, everything is going to be cool. And he encourages them. Look what God has done through you in verse 10. He says, look at the ministry that's happened. And we would say the same thing to you guys. Look what God is doing through you guys. You guys are planting churches. You guys are sending out missionaries. You guys are building orphanages. You guys are ministering to the lost. You guys are doing the ministry and the work of God. And that is not meaningless. That is powerful and potent. You are in the will of God. And all you need to do is walk with God. And everything will be cool until the end. It's simple. Stick with Jesus, pure gold. Bail out on Jesus, you got problems. So application for the sermon, stick with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are absolutely faithful. And we thank you for the wonderful work of the cross. Thank you that you saved us by grace. We never deserved it, but you came and did it. And Lord, we ask now that you'd help us to stick with you. We know the stickiness problem is not yours, it's ours. We're the wayward ones. You are so kind to save us. Help us to walk with you, Lord, 
Search our hearts, see if there be any wayward thing within us. Any deceit, Lord. Any funky walls we're building up, come and deal with that stuff and just restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. Jesus, the theme of this book is that you are better. Would you please become bigger and better in our hearts and in our minds? That leaving you would be the most ridiculous thing in the world? Would you be so big and awesome in our hearts and minds? That it wouldn't even be an option to leave you, Lord, but we'd stay with you. Lord, we thank you for saving us. Thank you that you're faithful to complete the work that you've begun. Bless your people, Lord. Lord, 